back to a, a memory that you have if you're a Christian here tonight. By the way, if you're not a Christian, thank you so much for being here. We're glad you're here. I hope that our church gets filled up with non-Christian people who are just hopefully maybe, I don't know, a little bit curious about what is church, what is the gospel, what is Jesus. Um, if you are a Christian, I want you to think back to a memory that you have of a moment when you really felt God's nearness. Sometimes when we become adults and such, we can even write those sorts of things off as, as childish, right? Like you grow up, you don't get those kind of experiences anymore. But do you remember a time when you really felt that God was near, that he was present, that he was real? A moment in your life when something happened or a series of events happened and you were overcome with this sensation, this reality that God was for you, he was with you. He was real. I was thinking back to a moment, a moment I actually shared with another brother in this room, i to call him now, Matt King, because uh, he and I have been friends for a very long time. We were at a conference, I believe it was in, oh, I'm going to butcher this map, but it was maybe 04, 05. We were at a passion conference. Okay, passion, that wasn't like a conference where we all got together and were super passionate about things. It was actually the name of a conference that was being held that year, I believe, in somewhere, Nashville, Dallas, I can't even remember. Let's just go with Nashville. And I will never forget that David Crowder was on stage, and there had just been that huge, crazy tidal wave in Thailand, right, that wiped out a ton of people. And David Crowder's songs are not the most complicated songs in the world, although I really like a lot of them. And so the night before, when the news came in about this horrible tsunami that had killed so many, he wrote this song. Um, you know, about the oceans rising, but about God's sovereignty and nearness and that God would win the day, even in our suffering. And it was Psalm 34 that I opened my Bible to that day. I freely admit I have some, some pet verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 12 is one, you know, power made perfect in weakness. If you're around for six months, you'll hear that a hundred times. But this is another one, Psalm 34, 18. And this was... This was the moment that I was standing there. This tragedy had just happened. We're singing this song. I'm reading through Psalm 34, and I come to verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And it was exactly what I needed. It was exactly what the world needed right in that moment. And I just remembered feeling, okay, I understand that it's subjective, but for me it was, it was deep, it was real, it was abiding. It was based in and around the scripture. It wasn't like a secret revelation or a new word from God. It was just a moment, an impression of God. I am near to you. I love you. And yet it's funny because so much of my life has lived outside of the realm of that. Right? I mean, you've got to wake up. You've got to get back to work. <laughs> you can't just be walking around on euphoric clouds of spiritual experiences all day. And I, I find myself frequently saying, that was so good, I remember that. Often the Psalms do this work, right? The Psalms do this work of remembering the great things God has done, and yet longing for more. It's not enough. I want more. I want to be filled with more awe and more wonder at the bigness of God 
and in his bigness and infinite greatness and holiness and set-apartness, I want to know the nearness of the Creator that cares for his creatures. We're in this series in the Psalms, Gospel Rhythms. The Psalms invite us to worship honestly. They invite us to remember the mountaintops while we trudge through the muck and the mess of the valleys. And sadly, often the mountaintops are short and the valleys are long. They invite us to worship not only honestly, but also upwardly. The Psalms give us this great picture of who God is. And upwardly, to receive his mercy for us that we might worship outwardly. We worship for each other. We're the church that we might bear each other's burdens and we're the church that we might be sent into the world for the life of the world. And so we're, we're talking about gospel rhythms. And I've identified four that I think will continue to come up in my sermons. A simple C, uh, whoops, C double R A. C double R A. And I can be really loud if this thing doesn't work too, so we're good. Confess, repent, receive, I don't need to yell anymore, and act. Confess, repent, receive, and act. Find this rhythm repeatedly in the Psalms. So our psalm today, Psalm 34, is a psalm of giving thanks, a psalm to remember a time when God was miraculously near in the life of David. But you know what? Even though it's a historical psalm, that is, it has a distinct historical context in 1 Samuel, it's broad enough for all of the people of God for all of those in Israel who would worship. So it's for you. It's for you to remember a time when God saved you and was near to you and revealed his presence to you. It's a song of thanks for salvation. That's the invitation. Taste and see that I am good, that I am near, that I will save you, even when it looks like you'll be overtaken by your enemies. It's in book one of the Psalms. We've talked about how the Psalms has five books, right? And how do we know that these five books are divided up in this way and that? Well, Psalm 1 and 2 are like a prologue, right? Psalm 149 and 50 are like an epilogue. We start with this kind of introduction to the wisdom of the Psalms, 1 and 2. We end with these two, you know, triumphant, exuberant, climactic psalms of praise. That's the end of the Psalter. And then all throughout, you have these literary cues, right? So uh, the designers of the book of Psalms, those who organize the Psalms into a book for the worship of Israel... They gave each of these five books its own sort of distinct content. Yet each book ends with a psalm of doxology, a psalm of praise, thinking back on the ones before it, remembering the work of God. And this way it mirrors the five books of Moses. So we said last week, the psalms are like a mini Bible. Martin Luther said that, or someone. The psalms are like a mini Bible. They contain all these great things that you will find in the scripture, the highs, the lows, and yet they're woven together by a single thread. God's promise of what is to come. The five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, your favorite, Numbers and Deuteronomy, are just that. They lead us on this path. They show us that God made all things good, that man sinned, and yet as soon as man sinned and alienated himself from God the Father, God began the work of drawing him back to himself and recreating what was lost in the garden. So that's the invitation of Psalm 34, taste and see. Let's read it now, and I'll read most of it, and then we'll pray. 
Psalm 34, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. That's the historical cue. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look, who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. What a beautiful image. And delivers them. Verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What is man? Oh, excuse me. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from seeking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against all those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, right? Let's not be foolish about the Christian life. Oh, I'm Christian, everything's going to be good. No, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will eventually slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now, I pray, as we study your word. Speak to us through your scriptures. Lord Jesus, speak to us who are crushed and who are broken. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Many of us have experienced your power in the past, but we long for it now. We long for it again. We, we need you to be near to us, to be real to us, to help us, just as you helped your servant David. So we call upon your promises, which are for us all, yes and amen in Christ. We call upon those promises. Be near to us, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Confess, repent, receive, and act. Confess. God is our refuge. God is our refuge. The Psalms beckon us to see the bigness and greatness of these many attributes of God. God is our refuge. But is he yours? Is he mine? <laughs> In life's difficulties, where, where we run? Where do we really run? Where, where can we run? I often find myself like Peter after I've run to a few things which don't really help, don't really satisfy. I find myself like Peter saying, Lord, I have nothing else but you. It's interesting. I've got a, a neighbor down the street. This guy has kind of been my mechanic for a couple months. Neighbor Stan. And I love neighbor Stan. He is this quirky Old guy, he's a character, and he's a mechanic, 
And that's about all he does is sit in his garage and enjoy a good brew and work on cars. And he's lived there for 100 years, where, way before Coronado got cool, right? And became a hip spot to live. He knows the neighborhood. He's keeping an eye on the people. And recently, I noticed he was having a garage sale. Well, then he had another garage sale. So I was like, I just stopped by. This is kind of weird. Stan's never had a garage sale the entire time I've known him, much less two in a row. Just seems strange. So I was walking up to the garage. I could see just redness around his eyes. And it turns out his father died. His dad was the owner of the house. Old man Kohler was 91 years old. He would still walk out of the house every day to get the paper and every afternoon to hear the birds. And he walked out of the house every day to the day he died wearing a full suit because he wore a full suit every day when he worked. And that's just, he was an old dude, just a classy guy. And as I walked up, I could see tears coming down Stan's face. He didn't say a word to me. He knows I'm a pastor. Sometimes he'll call me pastor. He'll apologize for cussing in front of me. You know, whatever. And he just walked right up and gave me a hug. Just gave me a big hug. I hugged him back and we got a chance to talk, a chance to pray. And it just reminded me that when we have loss in our lives, when things are stripped away that we normally sort of find ourselves in comfortable, in control, it's in those moments that we realize, just as Stan is realizing, that God alone can be our refuge. You see, David learned this lesson in Psalm 34, he experiences the huge power of God. David experiences this power. He tangibly tastes and sees that God is real. In 1 Samuel 21, he's on the run from Saul. He's been anointed king and yet not ordained and installed as king. And here's the problem. David's been anointed as king, but Saul is still the king. So he's fleeing the king. He runs down to the land of Gath. And he stands before the king after receiving Goliath's sword from the priest. He's just trying to get a weapon and run away so that he isn't overtaken by Saul's men. And he has to act totally crazy in front of the king, foaming at the mouth and drooling and just being a total weirdo, such that the king goes, this guy is a freak and he's harmless. Get him out of here. But in that moment, you can imagine David's fear. There's no way he's going to make it through this alive. I mean, people weren't done back in the day, right? Here's the one who's been anointed king of Israel. For crying out loud, he is in the land of Goliath. And he is the one who as a boy slew Goliath to reclaim Goliath's sword. And somehow now he stands before the king hoping that he'll be set free. It is a narrow escape. And it's a great story. It's a fun one to read. Read it later. First Samuel 21. God protects David. He saves David. He provides for David. You see God's hand all over this. God is a refuge. And yet what is so good, and this brings us back to confessing the attributes of God, David isn't just a robot in this situation. He acts. He moves. He's part of the story. He confesses his hope in the Lord, that the Lord will save him, but... He doesn't just confess it in a vacuum and then sit on his couch eating potato chips. He gets up. His hope spurs movement. He must flee from Saul 
and yet still have faith that he is God's anointed. And how true is this for us in our suffering? When you have to flee what you are suffering and run to Jesus, and yet we can't just sit there and wallow. We have to boldly, by faith, run to Jesus and believe that he will hear us, that we will hear him. What does the psalm tell us? The humble hear and they are glad. David must flee, although he is anointed, although the promise is right at his fingertips, he's now hiding. He's now on the run. And he must be cunning. He can't be foolish. He must be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. That's why he feigns madness. He pretends to be insane. But this is how God proves his promise by David's obedience. And this is why the psalm is so full of doxology. You see, the psalm is interesting, right? David as an individual praises the Lord, and then what does he do? He says, oh, come and magnify the Lord with me. God is so good and so big to save him in this moment, to be near to him, to remind him of his presence that he can't help but invite those around him to join him in praise. God proves his promise by David's obedience, and it leads to doxology. And so it goes in our psalm in several stanzas that the instruction to live righteously follows praise. And this is a model for the normal Christian life. God leads, God pursues, God chooses us, calls us to himself, wells up within us such great praise by his nearness and his help. And then the instruction on how to live wisely, on how now shall we live as those who are in Christ, united to Christ by the Holy Spirit and the work of God the Son, for the glory of God the Father, that instruction follows praising God for all he has done. But here we should break and repent as we do every week because our trust is weak. We don't trust God to show up. We don't run to him. We don't run to him first, at least. What do you run to? I know something I run to, and I don't know, maybe it's just because I got a lot of my, my mom's genes in me. But I'm a fan of the retail therapy. I mean, if you're going to pay a counselor every week, why not just pay stores to like buy stuff? And that's retail therapy. I just know that in my moments of frustration and feeling out of control or I'm tired or I'm this or I'm that, that's one thing that I run to. Maybe it's something else for you. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's lust and pornography. Maybe it's just control and anger. Maybe it's pride or maybe it's just apathy and weakness and laziness and just giving up. But we run to these things that we think will fix us, right? If I buy a new shirt, which will probably most likely be some sort of a bluish flannel shirt, then I'm going to feel better, even for just a minute. It's just a pill. David was anointed, but in flight. Even David said, this poor man cried to the Lord. Now, poor here in the Hebrew isn't just financially poor. It's not what it means at all, actually. It means afflicted and oppressed. It means a poverty of truly receiving all the gifts of God's <coughs> blessing by believing that he will do what he has promised to do. I am oppressed. I am afflicted. And it's really tough. And God knows that, by the way. This is so good. This is good news. God knows that we are dust. He knows that we struggle to trust him. He knows that we don't trust him when we're in a bind. We'd rather trust our stuff, money, 
He knows we fail to trust him day to day because we forget. We see ourselves as too big and God is too small. We spend all of this time and energy trying to hold it together when he is the one who holds all things together by the power of his word. And we struggle to trust him, especially in our suffering, where there is pain and sometimes regret, where we have shame, we're exhausted. We'd rather hide, we'd rather stay in the darkness because we falsely think, we foolishly think that we can protect ourselves there. So as we confess God's goodness and power, we must repent. That means turn. We must turn away from our self-reliance, our works righteousness, our thinking we can do it on our own, and turn to Jesus. Although our trust is weak, God's promise never fails. Verse 7. How can you not love verse 7? How can you not want to have verse 7 on a plaque in your home, or perhaps a tattoo on your forehead? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That is reverence him. That is trust him with fear and trembling and delivers them. Now in the scriptures, whenever we see the angel of the Lord, we usually see a 900-pound, extremely chubby, cute baby with a harp. And that baby descends. And in the baby's descent, this is all in the Greek, by the way, in the descent of the baby, it morphs into a dragon with 30 heads. No, that's not what we see ever in the Bible, okay? The angel of the Lord isn't a chubby baby with a harp. The angel of the Lord is a fearful, powerful being. Have you ever just stood in the presence of something way more powerful than you? When I was on Christmas break, I was driving my father-in-law's tractor on snow. And me driving is one thing. Me driving a tractor is quite another me driving a tractor on snow is a third. Okay, like not to be recommended. Do not try this at home. And it was weird because there's like snow on the seat. I'm sliding around and this thing weighs like thousands of pounds and you fall off and get run over and you're done. And I just remember thinking like, wow, I'm standing in the presence of something that I better be really careful with right now because it is bigger and more powerful than me. Great illustration. Well, that's the angel of the Lord. Powerful. We have an image in Isaiah, we have an image in Revelation of a warrior, strong, able, something that can fly, something that has more arms and legs than we do, that can fight. And this is God's promise, that it never fails. The angel of the Lord encamps, makes its presence and protection around the people of God so we can receive. The Lord hears. We've repented, our trust is weak, we can receive. The Lord hears. When the righteous cry for help, he delivers. We receive it by faith, even small, weak, limping faith. And kids, I was reading an article this week, right? It's Christianity Today or something like this about just how we have to be careful as parents. And by the way, if you're not a parent here, then take and read. You know, eat the scroll, learn, okay? Because maybe you're discipling someone, you're parenting in some fashion. Dave Bennett is parenting in the most amazing fashion. But this is for everybody. This article was talking about how dangerous it is, and I do this all the time. Where in my quest to be good at discipline and have, you know, everything right and obedient, because the fifth commandment, and honor the Lord, and yet somehow I'm too lazy to properly apply discipline in the fifth commandment and not always saturate it in the gospel, which is foolish. And this article's point was just that so many kids who grow up in these, you know, hardcore disciplinarian homes, and discipline is necessary, do not mishear me. But if that's all there is, 
that these kids just grow up and here's what they learn. My parents love me when I do the right thing. When I don't do the right thing, they don't love me. And brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. No, it is not the gospel. That is the farthest thing from the gospel. And if you are a parent, especially of young ones, you know how hard this is. It's really, really tough. And I am quick to anger and lazy to, to do this gospel rhythm work, even with my own kids. God, help me. But this is not the gospel. When you do well, I love you. And when you mess up, I don't. When you do really well, you had a good week this week. Read your Bible a few times. Read the Tim Keller songbook, you know, four out of seven days. Didn't really lust too much. Didn't cuss too much. You know, didn't smoke too many cigars. Didn't do whatever you do. All right? Jesus loves you. You're worthy. You're worthy to come to his presence. Oh, but you had a bad week. Ooh, you barely got to church this week. Good thing no one knows what a sinner you are. And your depraved mind and your love of power and your love of all manner of lustful things and the pride of life and the lust of the eyes and money. Yeah, God's, God's not too happy with you today. Come back next week. Try better. That is a lie from hell. That is a lie of the devil. It is the strongest, most powerful lie of the devil, actually. And we should, in our worship, in our prayer, in our preaching, and especially at the Lord's table, we should send that lie to hell every single week. Because it is not the strength of our faith or the goodness of our week that saves us. But even faith as small as a mustard seed that we place in the Lord Jesus who has done all of these things for us. So although our trust is weak, his trust was never weak. Although we don't trust him in a binder day to day or in our suffering, Jesus trusted God in all of those things. And he is not some abstract principle. He is the real flesh and blood son of God who came in the flesh, incarnate, incarnate for us, the image bearers of God who have lost our way to show us the way and the truth and the life. He did not come for perfect people, but the brokenhearted and the crushed. What breaks you? What breaks your heart? What crushes you? What are those things? He came for that. He didn't just come to look at those things and go, oh, you know, you suck if you could get better. He came to meet you in the middle of those things and lift you up when you are exhausted and powerless to lift yourself. And that is why we can cry out to the one who fulfills, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John quotes this verse in relationship to Jesus Christ. We know that on the cross his bones were not broken. He died before they needed to break his knees, at which point the other thieves whose knees were broken suffocated. We can cry out to the one who fulfills verse 20 for all the hope and promise of verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, your crushedness, your brokenheartedness, your malaise, your good days, your bad days. You're just, you know what? You're a hundred miles away from Passion 2005 and that mountaintop experience. You haven't experienced that mountaintop in as long as you can remember. You're just trying to make it. You're just trying to pay bills or raise kids and not go insane. And God is going to redeem all of that. 
the life of his servants, not just the highs, the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, lastly, we hear the corporate refrain from David. Come, O children, O come. This, this imploring word that the body would come together to taste and see. And I want to see God do great things. I want to see God do things this year in our lives, in my life. Really, really. This is what I want badly for me and for you. We have all kinds of logistics stuff to work on. We've got to cast vision for the year. We've got to get rooted. We've got to get our why, what, and how. We've got our core values. We've got all this stuff, and it's important. But you know what I want to see? I want to see God do things this year that we say it had to be God. He met me. He was near to me. It could not have been anything else. And I don't mean to just seek a miracle or an experience. I want God. I want him. I want his nearness and presence. And so maybe him doing something big is just him doing the normal. Just presence daily. Just walking with us. There's so many little things just Titillating us everywhere, every manner of distraction and escape into our phones, into our computers, into every little thing that we get into and research and think about. And then we just, I do this all the time, just moving on to the next little thing that I have to buy and research and distract myself from just sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is alive. Those things will numb us to a slow death, but Jesus is alive. He is the God of the living. We hear it in all three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So that's my prayer for our church and for me and for you. I want to taste and see God. I want God to move in us in power. I want us to have our ground tilled, the grounds of our, of our heart. The soil of our heart, I want it tilled up. I want our idols to be thrown down and overthrown so that the world looks at us and goes, That's real. That's not fake, Christianese nonsense. Happy, clappy, yay, church. God is good. I know all the right words to say. What's he do, man? The devil and the demons know all those same words. And they shudder when they say them. They don't believe them. The words are not enough. I want to live and see people loved. I want to see people saved. Honestly, I confess to you as a church, I want to see this year... Some people that I know, that I've met in Phoenix who are not Christians, I, I don't have any special magical words. Sometimes I want to have those with philosophical arguments and apologetics and debates and blah, blah, blah. But I don't. That stuff never changes a heart. That stuff doesn't raise anyone from the dead. It's important. God can use it. But it doesn't raise people from the dead. I want to see someone in my life this year come to know Jesus for the first time. Because it's been too long for me. I want to see our neighbors cared for and our tables open. I want to see our church matter in Phoenix. I want our church to be the church, a church among many wonderful churches downtown that, you know what, if it closed its doors tomorrow, people would be bummed. Councilwoman Kate Gallego would call me on the phone and say, what happened, man? Because you guys were doing good work. Why'd you close your doors? We need you. And by that, she would hopefully only mean that the city needs Jesus and the people of Jesus. 
So without the end, come to the table, all you who are brokenhearted and crushed. Put your faith in Jesus and his promises, and you will be saved. Turn from self-reliance. Turn from sin. Turn from thinking you can do it on your own, and turn to the one whose arms are already wide open. You think you're turning to him, but he is drawing you to himself magnetically with arms already open. You will taste and see. We want to taste and see this year. And tasting and seeing that he is good, we will have much food. You may think, I've only got a couple fish and a couple loaves. Jesus will multiply your fish and loaves so that you have enough to feed all that he is sending you to in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 34. We want to taste and see that you are good. We love you. We, we praise you. God, we confess that you are our refuge. We ask your forgiveness because our trust is weak and we receive that forgiveness. You hear us. You are near to the brokenhearted and you save the crushed. And even as David invites us to corporately sing and give praise, we are invited to sing and praise with our actions, to pray more, to read more, not because we have to, but because we want to. Lord, be near to us and may your power motivate us to love and serve those around us. Draw us to this table for heavenly food. Send us into the world with multiplied fishes and loaves for the life of the world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now we come to the Lord's table, communion. What is communion? Call it a, a sacrament. It's a sacred moment. It's a holy moment. It's a moment for us to Think and pray on all the promises of God. The promises of God for us in this new covenant. You see, the whole Bible story is about God making a promise to redeem and save sinful people. That's the whole story. And here we have a picture of the links that God went to to accomplish that. We read that verse, right? Near the brokenhearted, saves the crushed. It would be nothing more than good poetry if it weren't for this table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread after he had prayed and given thanks, and he broke it. He told his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. When you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. He then took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. As often as you drink it, remember me until I come. It's fascinating that Jesus gave us this great picture of his body and his blood spilled out for us, that he might forgive our sin, that he might bear God's wrath for us, that he might save us and empower us with the resurrection. He gave this meal to those who were about to break his heart. Those who had said, remember the disciples, they're just like us. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Yeah, no matter what. And then one hard time comes, fear, suffering, and what do they do? And they do what we do. They ran, they scattered. But this table was for them. Because Jesus knew that he had a plan for them, to draw them back to himself. And so this table is for us. Tonight, if you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means you're a member of this church, and your hope and faith is in Jesus, even a tiny bit of faith, this table is for you. Not to walk with your head hung low, but is crushed and brokenhearted to have your head lifted, that you might run to this table. If you're not yet baptized, but you put your faith in Jesus, then 
Come talk to me after service, and let's baptize you in the name of the Lord. Parents, if you're not sure if your kids are ready to commune, but they have been baptized, we would ask that you would wait until they can talk to me or Lauren Kutzko. But we are of the persuasion here that even small children in an age-appropriate way who can put their hope and their faith in Jesus are invited to this table. Let's pray over these elements and then we'll come together. We'll come dancing and twirling to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness and mercy to us.